Can you hear me now? Let's do it again. Good evening, church. Good to be with you all this evening. Uh, I wanted to welcome everybody again. If you are new, so many people are moving to Miami in August, and you're welcome here, as Simone said earlier. Uh, if you walked in on the way in, you know that you can belong here even before you believe, and we mean that. We want you to find a place in this community, regardless of where you're at in your spiritual journey. And that actually connects to our passage this evening because this is one of those passages in the Bible uh, where there's a, a great deal of dysfunction again. And it's a passage where you could read it and it may affect your faith, it may make you feel uncomfortable, it may make you be like, why is this in the Bible? How many of you have read the Bible before and you've read a story and you're like, why is this in the Bible? You know, and many of us, if you're in the beginning of your faith or maybe you grew up in the church and now you're just coming back, sometimes these are the things that cause us to say, I don't understand how a holy book can have this level of dysfunction. We're, we're beginning this evening, episode 10 in our summer series, Wanderers and Wrestlers. The title of this sermon is The King Has Another Move. But this passage doesn't feel like there's a lot of great moves taking place. Certainly no kingly moves. Because, again, the family dysfunction with the people that God has covenanted to work in and through is incredibly dysfunctional. It's, it's a huge mess. And in this story, in Genesis chapter 29, if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Or you can click on the notes in the app. In this story, where we see Jacob make his way to that foreign territory, Haran, and meet this uh, family and these two women, you're going to see a lot of really poor choices. You're going to see a lot of things that are uncomfortable. You're going to see exploitation. You're going to see a whole mess. And it's not just in this passage. We've actually seen a lot of that this summer as we've been going through uh, the book of Genesis, looking at Abraham's life and Isaac's life and Jacob's life. But there's a reason for this. I, I want you to, to hear this. When you read the Bible and you read stories and events about characters and situations that make you feel uncomfortable, or, or you're like, I don't understand why this level of mess is in the Bible, one, I want to say you're supposed to feel that. It's intentional. The Bible doesn't make, give you all the best parts of human history and how God works. He gives you the mess of broken people. And that's because every story is pointing to something. It's trying to reveal the brokenness of people, even people of faith. The brokenness of people to reveal the goodness of God. 
That's what we see time and time again, that God works through broken people, people that make wrong moves, people that make bad moves and bad choices, and they find themselves in places and and situations where it seems like there's no way out, and then God comes in and makes a move in their life. That's who God is, and that's how he works, and he's faithful to us even when we are unfaithful to him. That's the God that we serve, and that's what we're going to see in Genesis chapter 29. So I want to jump into the story, and I want to do something a little bit different tonight. Normally, at the beginning of the sermon, I will read the text to you, and then we will work through the text and kind of break it apart and see what God has to say from it. We're still going to do that, but in a different way. I don't want to read it. I want to tell you the story because I want you to feel the tension, and I want you to picture and put yourself in this situation to see what's taking place, okay? So we left off last week with Jacob in this unnamed place that he eventually names, and he calls it Bethel, which means the house of God. And that is because when he goes to sleep, he has this dream, and he sees Jacob's ladder. It's the famous story of Jacob's ladder, where heaven and earth are connected, and angels are descending and ascending upon the ladder. And he has this profound experience where he realizes that God is transcendent, and he's imminent, and he's personal, and he's faithful. When he wakes up from the dream, he fe- he's like a completely different person. He goes to sleep depressed and, and just destroyed because he's run away from home because his brother wants to kill him because he stole the blessing that was due his brother Esau, and he exploited his father in the process. So he has to flee from his family, and he goes to sleep in this depressed, destroyed, downcast place, and he wakes up worshiping praising God. He makes this memorial stone of praise, and then he continues on. He has to be thinking that life is getting better because at this moment, right before the Jacob's Ladder dream, it had to have felt to him like everything was destroyed. He tried to take this blessing, which was good for him, and he thought it was going to be beneficial for him, but he sacrificed his family and his homeland and everything he ever knew. And he's on the run for his life, running to a place called Haran, to a people he's never met and a countryside he's never been to. But now he has to be optimistic because he had this dream and he knows who God is and God is faithful. And so he's making his way to Haran. He's close and he sees a well in the distance. He heads towards the well and he sees all of these shepherds with their flock around the well because they're taking the water in the wilderness, really a desert region, and they're watering the sheep. So he gets there to the well, and he starts to talk with the shepherds. And he's like, hey, I'm, I'm coming from this you know, place, like, and, and I'm heading here in Haran, and I'm looking for this guy named Laban. Do you know him? They're like, yeah, yeah we know Laban. Everybody knows Laban. And then he's like, is he good? They're like, yeah, he's good. Like, he's, he's good people. And then they go, by the way, His daughter, who's a shepherdess, she's coming right now. Like, she's bringing her sheep over here, so why don't you meet her? So the scene shifts, and he looks at Rachel, one of Laban's daughters, as she approaches. And it's like in the movies, you know, when the vignette, when the corners are black, and it kind of laser focuses in, and the love music starts. Because he sees Rachel coming, and it's like his mouth drops open, and he sees the most beautiful woman he's ever seen in his life. 
And she comes closer and closer. It's literal love at first sight. And he starts, you know, fumbling over his words. He's like, can I help you with the, you know, the sheep? Let me, like, do you want water or whatever? And then he, like, they introduce each other. I'm, I'm Jacob. I'm Rachel. And then in a very weird and aggressive mood, okay, uh, aggressive mood, he kisses her. Okay, guys? It's not a good move, okay? He's like, hey, I'm, I'm Jacob. You're Rachel. You want some water? Then he kisses her. After he kisses her, it gets even more awkward. He starts weeping. Okay? This is what happens. He's so in love that he just kisses her and then starts crying. Now, the shepherds around have to be like, what is this guy's deal? Like, where's this guy from? He's a weirdo. Then she runs away to go tell her dad. You're like, oh, no. Here we go. What's Laban going to do? You know, some strange man just kissed his daughter at a well and started crying. So Laban comes. He's at the well. I mean, I, I imagine he has to be kind of like nervous, like, man, maybe it was a little too much, the kiss and the cry. You know, I don't know. See, I'm going to defend myself here. And then Laban's like, hey, um, do you want to stay with us? It's like, it's all good. Like, come stay with us. He's like, yeah, of course I want to stay with you. I'm in love with your daughter. So then they go and head to hit Laban's house. And Jacob is going to stay there. But then Laban's like, hey, listen, here's the deal. You can stay here. But you're not staying for free. Like you got to work to eat. So what are you going to do? What are your wages? What, what are you going to be paid? Now remember, he's in love with Rachel. Like love at first sight, kissing and crying kind of love. You know, this is another level here. So he says, here's what I'll do. I, I want to marry your daughter. And there's this negotiation. Okay, you're going to work for seven years, which was a large wage. I mean, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of capital that he could have earned and money, but he doesn't want any money. He just wants the privilege of being able to marry Rachel. So Laban's like, bet, that's a deal. Like, let's do it, you know, and seven years, and then you get to marry Rachel. So he works for seven years, manual labor, serving Laban, not receiving any money, just so that he has the privilege of marrying Rachel. Rachel, and the text says that it feels like a few days, seven years. So in love. Then the time has come where he's completed the seven years. You have to imagine that morning. You know, he wakes up, he's kind of feeling himself now. You know, he does his hair, he's looking good, he's got a little strut in his step, and he head, heads over to Laban's house. And he's like, hey, listen, seven years is up, it's time. For me to marry your daughter. But then we've already learned that Jacob's like kind of weird. And he's awkward. He kisses and he cries. So then he says to Rachel's father. Here's what he says. Hey, the time has come for me to marry your daughter. So I can have sex with her. That's what he says. Like Jacob's weird guy. Okay. But it reveals something. He has this laser focus on Rachel. He's infatuated with her. He, he fell in love with her so deeply before he ever talked to her, simply because of her beauty. She is unbelievably beautiful. See, here in the text, we also find something else out about Rachel and also her sister. She has an older sister named Leah. Now, Leah and Rachel could not be more different. Leah, who's the older sister, she is not attractive, in fact, her name means cow. Not a great name. 
in this culture to say that, you know, it's not great. No offense to any Leah's in a room, wonderful name. Okay? <laughs> Rachel's name means you, a beautiful female sheep. So, like, the father already has, like, named his daughters based upon how he views them. You have one who's beautiful, who's attractive, and who everybody is just honoring and wants to be like Rachel. And then you have Leah, who her whole life has felt unwanted, has felt unloved, and is always compared to her sister and isn't nearly as attractive. In fact, the text says that she has soft eyes. Some, some scholars think maybe that she ha- actually had problems with her eyes. But other scholars think that when you looked in Leah's eyes, she had no passion, no spark. Imagine being told this and treated this way, like you're not as attractive as your sister. You have no real spark, and there's really no passion in your eyes. And then you have Rachel, the passion, the beauty. The, everybody wants to be like her. So go back to Jacob. He loves Rachel. He doesn't even barely know Leah exists. He doesn't love Rachel, doesn't care for her. He's going to marry Leah. He's going to marry Rachel. So when this all comes out, when he shares that awkward news with her dad, hey, listen, I want to marry Rachel so that I can, you know, we can have the bed, you know, we can get married and all of that. And the dad gets like, he doesn't get awkward. He actually thinks exactly where Jacob is at because Jacob is laser focused on the physicalness of Rachel. He just wants to be with her. He wants to go to the bridal chamber. He wants to get married and consecrate the marriage. It's his whole focus. And Laban knows that he can exploit him. Because he has superficial, shallow love at this point for Rachel. It's based upon appearance. So here's what he does. Laban says, I know, seven years is up. It's time. Let's plan the feast right now. Like, let's have a whole wedding ceremony. Let's have the reception. We're going to have a drinking party. Actually, the word in Hebrew says that this was a drinking feast. Like, this is laughing and singing, and the drinks are flowing, and everyone's having a good time. This is the night of Jacob's life. He's finally going to marry the love of his life. It's been seven years. The party's dying down, and he's like, hey, it's time to go to the bridal chamber. So he heads off. Remember, this is a drinking party. He's been drinking a lot. He's not totally coherent. And it's dark. It's in the middle of the night. And so they're in the bridal chamber. And when he is in the bed waiting for Rachel to come so they can consecrate the marriage and make it official, Laban, the father, switches out Rachel for Leah. So in the middle of the night, without knowing it, he consecrates the marriage that he thinks with Rachel, and it's actually with Leah. He wakes up in the morning, probably a headache, rubbing his eyes, looking over. He's going to look over at his bride, Rachel. And the text says, behold, it was Leah. (laughs) So he gets out of bed, realizing what's happened, and he runs to Laban. He's like, yo, what's going on here? I worked seven years Why is Leah in my bed? It's supposed to be Rachel. And then Laban, who is a snake, he says, listen, I know maybe I should have told you before, but it's not our custom to marry off the younger before the older. So it's kind of how it works here. I know that you're like a foreigner in this land, but this is kind of how we do it. But he's stuck because now he's married to Leah. 
And Laban's played that this is our culture and custom card, and Jacob can't say anything about it. But then he goes on because he's looking to exploit. He's not caring about Jacob or his daughters. He's only caring for himself and his bottom line and his business. And so he says, here's the deal. I will give you Rachel. In fact, I'm only going to make you wait one week. Just do the honeymoon. Make it all official with Leah. After a week, you can finally marry Rachel, but you have to serve another seven years for free. He's stuck. So he accepts. So after one week, Jacob has two wives and one of them he doesn't want. Can you imagine how he feels? Can you imagine how Leah feels? Can you imagine how Rachel feels? And just to throw salt in the wound of kind of what's happening in this dysfunctional family, the text says that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Later we find out that actually Jacob hated Leah. She remained his wife. See, there's a lot of things that we could take out of this passage, a lot of applications. The, one of them could be that don't base a relationship on physical appearance alone. That's shallow. Another one could be that don't put your hope in a person as if they're going to be the one that's going to satisfy every longing of your heart. Another one is the evil of exploitation. There's a lot of different applications, but I want to talk about one that I think is underlying through this text and as it continues into the next chapter in chapter 30, and that is this, that the king has another move. He has another move. So here's what takes place after this. Going back to, to Rachel and to Leah, it's interesting how different they are, and their difference is not simply in their attractiveness or in their naming or in the way that they're viewed. It's even deeper. The pain that they both experience in life is very different. For instance, let's start with Leah. Leah, from the very beginning of her life, struggled deeply. She knew that she was unwanted, she was unloved, constantly compared to her sister. She felt that her father didn't even care for her and looked to exploit her. Imagine the, the depth of loneliness that she felt. No one wanted her. Everyone wanted her sister. Then she experienced the trauma of being exploited by her father to marry a man that didn't want to marry her. Imagine how that felt. All for her seemed lost. All for her felt hopeless. But God, the king, had another move. Chapter, verse 31 says this in chapter 29. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. See, one of the things that Leah desired more than anything was the ability to have children. In the very beginning, she thought that by having children, she would earn the love of her husband. She comes to find that that actually doesn't make any difference. He doesn't love her anymore, though she's producing children for him, giving him sons. But ultimately, that reveals to her that it's, it's not that she should be looking for love in her husband, but she should see the love of God for her on her life. After the fourth son, it says that she finally praises God 
The first three sons, it's all about using them to try to get the love of her husband. But the fourth son, she's like, God, you have been good to me. You have seen me. He opens her womb. Her whole life was felt overlooked and unloved. And now she feels seen by the very God who made her, who has opened her womb and given her children. And she ultimately has six sons and a daughter. Her life was changed when God moved in her life. Then we go to... Rachel. Rachel's whole life from the very beginning, from the the beginning of her life was perfection. I mean, everyone wanted to be Rachel. They wanted to look like her. They wanted the uh, attention that she got. She could have written a book, How to Make a Guy Work 14 Years for You. And then she would have been on the cover of Vogue for it. She had everything. And then probably you can imagine the tension even too when Jacob married Rachel and her sister, and then kind of that rivalry between siblings, like, he doesn't love you, he loves me. But we read here that she was barren. So for her, her life in the very beginning was great. Everything was going as she imagined. Couldn't have been better. But after every child that Leah had, her pain increased. Her depression increased increased. She wanted a a child so badly, but she could not conceive one. At one point, she goes to Jacob, and she says, Jacob, if you can't give me a son, I want to die. Like, I want to die. Talk about a tragedy. Everything great at the beginning, and then all the pieces of the puzzle begin to fall off to where she's left feeling hopeless and alone but God, the king, had another move. First, chapter 30 says this, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her, her cries. And he opened her womb and gave her a son, ultimately giving her two sons. See, for both of them, Leah and Rachel, two very different stories, both struggling with rejection, struggling with depression, struggling with difficulty in their life, but at different points of their life and in different ways. But God comes to make a move in their life, and he redeems the pain. God the king had another move for them when all seemed hopeless. There's a painting I want to show you. It's a famous painting that used to hang in the Louvre. Now it's a part of a private collection. Here's the painting on the screen. This is called Checkmate. I don't know if you've ever seen this before. So you can see here in the picture, there is this man on the right who is downcast. And he's downcast because Satan on the left has him in checkmate. He has no more moves. He's stuck. It's all over. There's a story about how there was this tour group moving through the Louvre when this painting hung there. And in the tour group, there was a man who was a grandmaster in chess, a world champion. They're moving through and seeing all the beautiful art and sculptures, and they come to this painting. They stop. The Louvre is so long, you can't stay too long. Look for a little bit. It's great. Keep moving. Well, he stayed there. He stayed there fixated on this painting. 
He was there for so long that the tour group had kept going and was gone, and an attendant comes up to this man and says, hey, I've noticed you've been standing here for a long time looking at this painting. I mean, it's not the Mona Lisa. What's going on? He said, let me tell you a little something. I'm a grandmaster in chess. I'm a multi-time world champion. And I've been staring at this painting, particularly at the chessboard, because the title of this piece is Checkmate. The man is in checkmate and Satan has him. It's all over. But actually, when you study the board, he says, the king has another move. In fact, the move that the king can make is a winning move, and it will checkmate Satan himself. See, I tell you this because I want you to hear something. You may identify with how Leah felt. You may identify currently with how Rachel felt as things started to decline over decades. All of us in this room have the chess pieces of our life arranged differently. Some of us lose a lot of pieces in the beginning. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of difficulty that happens at the beginning of our lives. Some of us have pieces that fall off slowly over time. But all of us in this room find ourselves at different points in life where we feel like we are at checkmate. It's hopeless. We have no more moves. We've tried a bunch of moves. We've made some wrong ones. We've made some bad strategy decisions. But we feel now like we're stuck. It's checkmate. It's over. The king has another move. He has another move. Go back to Rachel and Leah. So Rachel, as she felt hopeless, decades of decline, as she is waiting for the child that she wants so desperately, but is barren and cannot have that child, then God remembers her. He listens to her cry. He listens to her pain. And he opens her womb. And she has a child. Her first son, do you know what his name is? Joseph. He will be the one in the very near future that will save God's people. The king had another move. Leah, her whole life was difficult from the very beginning. Such pain, such difficulty, overlooked, loneliness, being exploited by your very father. Everything was lost and hopeless. But God remembered her, and he opened her womb, and she had child after child after child. And the fourth child that Leah has is Judah, and Judah is where the Savior of the world, that lineage, will one day be born. The greatest blessing in the history of the world, Jesus Christ himself, the author and perfecter of our salvation, is born from the lineage of Leah, the woman who was overlooked and unloved and treated as an outcast her whole life, is the mother of the lineage of the Savior of the world. The king had another move. I want you to hear this, friends. Please hear this. When you are in your darkest days of romance, the king has another move. When you are in the darkest days of feeling exploited or overlooked in your career, the king has another move. When you are in your darkest days of feeling unwanted and unloved, the king has another move. When you are in your darkest days of relationships and it's all lost, it's hopeless, it's never going to get better, the king has another move. When you are in your darkest days of rejection, guess what? Can you say it with me? The king has another move. Do you believe that? 
You are not at checkmate. You may feel like you're at checkmate. You may feel downcast, and you may feel it's all over, and there's no other way out. I can't see a strategy or a way around this, but the king has another move. You are not a checkmate in your life. The game of your life is not over. It never is because you have the very king who created your life over your life working for good in it. And the moves that God will make in your life are winning moves. Even when you feel like it's all over and it's all hopeless, the king has another move. I'm going to ask you tonight, if you feel in any way that you are in checkmate, it's hopeless, it's over, maybe it's relationships, you've tried and you tried and you tried, it's not getting better, would you tell yourself that the king has another move? Maybe it's in your career. Maybe it's in finding friends. Maybe it's to move past some of the trauma that happened at the early stages of your life. Maybe it's things are slowly falling apart and you don't know what to do. You don't know how to stop it. The king has another move. And it's a winning one. Some of you here tonight, you may feel that you're in spiritual checkmate. Like, I, I've, I mean, I've tried everything. I'm trying to do the right thing, but I keep making mistakes. There is no way that I could experience the love of God, the forgiveness of God. I mean, maybe God has another move for other people, but not for me. I'm in spiritual checkmate. Please don't believe that for a second. The king had another move, and his name is Jesus. And he went to the cross to checkmate Satan himself. So that you would never think for a moment that you will be in checkmate in your life or spiritual checkmate because the head of the evil one, Satan, was crushed by Christ himself. You don't have to feel that way. In fact, the invitation for you is for you to receive the love and the grace and the assurance and the faithfulness of God over your life through faith in Jesus. You may have made all the wrong moves, bad tactical decisions, It's okay. The king has another move and his name is Jesus. And he is for you. And you are invited to receive him. I want to close by inviting you to pray. One of two things. If you're here tonight and you feel at a place where you're hopeless, you feel that you're a checkmate, you've made wrong decisions or decisions have been pushed on you that have affected you in a deep way and you feel like there's no way around it, I want to pray and ask you to believe and to claim that the king has another move in your life. Make it personal. And if you're here tonight and you have maybe felt a distance with God, you feel like you're in spiritual checkmate. Maybe you're at church tonight because you're trying to do something to earn God's love by being at church. You don't have to earn his love. It's already here for you in the person of Christ. Would you receive that? forgiveness and that freedom found in Jesus. He loves you truly. He doesn't label you. He wants you to find him. So would you pray with me and find healing or find Jesus tonight with me? God, we come before you as your people, humbled that we don't have to feel that the game of our life is over. We don't have to feel and believe that we are in checkmate because we are not. God, you, the king, have another move. We may not see it. We may have 
felt that there's no way out, but there is always a way out with you because you are the one overseeing the chessboard of our life and you are the one that is making moves on our behalf and you have promised that they are for our good. And you remember us and you listen to us when we cry out. And so I ask right now that you would hear the prayers of your people. For anyone here that feels like it's hopeless, that they've tried and they've tried and they've tried, but it just hasn't come together. I pray that you would allow them in this moment to sense your Holy Spirit reminding them that all is not lost. There is no checkmate with you, God. Would you allow them right now to bring to 